Standing for the reading of God's word. Today's reading is 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Uh, we're working through a teaching series through 1 John. Know that you know God is the title of this series. To know that you know God is heaven on earth. And uh, John is helping us with that in his little letter, 1 John. And now we come to... Uh, cautions for fellowship. The whole book is about intimacy with God, and um, it gives us markers of those that truly have an intimate relationship with God. Intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality. There's nothing like intimacy with God. That's the essence of the Christian life. And, uh, and, but there are things that we need to be aware of, cautions. We'll look at two cautions, this one this week, one next week. The first one we're looking at here is don't love the world. It's based on the text that was just read. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 John chapter 2, and we'll be diving into verses 15 through 17. Let me start by just saying that I grew up in a church that defined worldliness like this. Don't drink, don't smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do, okay? Yeah. And add to that no dancing. We didn't dance. That's why I can't dance to this day. No dancing, no movies, no cards, no card playing, and uh, no mixed bathing. That's, that's an odd way to say swimming, isn't it? It's like, yeah, we're not doing any mixed bathing, but we're swimming. That was the argument that we would have. But, uh, so no mixed bathing. And if you add all of that together, you've got the making of boundary marker spirituality. Boundary marker spirituality. Now take a look at your sermon notes because part of the intro, I'm gonna explain this to you. And that if we are... If we as Christians do not change from the inside out, so Christians change from the inside out. That's, it's, it's not a morally restrained will. It's a supernaturally transformed heart. It's not behavioral modification. It's heart transformation that certainly changes your behavior, but it begins from the inside out. And uh, so if, if we as Christians do not change from the inside out, we are tempted to find external methods to satisfy our need to feel that we are different from those outside the faith. Boundary marker spirituality is highly visible 
relatively superficial practices that allow people to distinguish who is an insider and who is an outsider of the family of God. Even worse, insiders become proud and judgmental toward outsiders. And we all do this. And, uh, but it's not to say that there isn't boundary markers because this, this whole book of John is, is giving us boundary markers. In fact, if I were to summarize all the boundary markers into three, this is what you see in 1 John over and over again. He just keeps repeating these and kind of weaves them throughout the book is the boundary marker that we should be looking for is, do you love Christ and everything that he is and represents. Do you love him more than you love the world? Do you, do you love people in your life more than anything except for Christ? And out of that overflow of Christ, then we're able to love people. And do you love his word? So those would be the big three boundary markers that we see in 1 John Love Christ, love people, love God's word more than anything in life. So uh, what's the big idea here in this text? Uh, It's on your notes there. Here's the main point. It's a command, that's verse 15a, and a warning, that's verses 15b to 17. So here's the command, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, it's interesting, when you look at a word like this, you want to find out how often it's used in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. And this word, word, world, is used 186 times in the New Testament, 186 times. 77 of those 186 times, it is found in the Gospel of John, the writer here of 1 John. So 77 times it's used in the Gospel of John and 23 times in, in 1 John. 23 times. So over 100 times John is using this word. And there's different definition, definitions for that, this, world as what, uh, this word, what we will see in just a little bit. But here's the three questions we're dealing with. What isn't and is loving the world? What it isn't, what it is to love the world, why we shouldn't love the world more than we love God, and how do we not love the world more than we love God. So let's look at this first one. What isn't and is loving the world? It isn't, it isn't the material earth and people that he's telling us not to love. Because the Bible tells us in Psalm 24.1, the, the earth is the Lord's. The material earth is the Lord's. And it is good, and God has given it to us to enjoy. Good relationships, laughter, beauty, music, work, good food and drink are all gifts from God meant for our pleasure, sustenance, and enjoyment. Let me give you a couple verses just to prove that to you. Uh, 1 Timothy 4.4, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So your thanksgiving shouldn't terminate on the gifts that God has given you, but they should roll on up to thanking him and adoring him for these gifts. All of creation is a gift from God and a pointer to God. And uh, he wants you to enjoy those things. 
Then here's the next verse, 1 Timothy 6, 17. As for the rich in this present age, he's talking about the rich there, but we would be rich in our present age. Everybody in here is rich compared to the rest of the world. So it d- depends on how you, what you compare it with. And, and biblically, the Bible would say that we're rich. <clears throat> so he's speaking to us. <clears throat> so he says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. What does it mean to be haughty? It means to be proud, arrogant, conceited. And money tends to make us that way. All you need to do is not drive very far from here. It's a place called Hollywood, and you've got a lot of haughty people that live there and come out of there. And uh, movie stars and rock stars and athletic stars, they tend to be haughty. They tend to be full of themselves. They tend to be proud. And he says, "Don't, don't let the riches of this world to make you haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, notice what he says here, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, with everything to enjoy. Like I said, you enjoy those things, but you don't let, it, you don't let your praise and adoration terminate on the gifts of God. You let that roll on up to the God who gave you those gifts, and that's important to do. It can be a worship experience when you're eating steak. It can be truly a worship experience when you're eating your favorite dessert. Because you're going, oh my goodness, God, this is amazing what you've given us. This is a great gift from you. And, and this is good, but not as good as you. And that's, that's the whole idea here. So it's, it's not the material earth that he tells us not to love, nor is it the people on this material earth. Listen to what he says in, in John, the writer here, in John chapter 1, verse 10. He's going to use the word world three different times with three different definitions. See if you can track with this, see if you can understand this. So uh, first John, or John chapter one, verse 10, he was in the world, speaking of Jesus, Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So three different it uses the word three times, world, but it, with different definitions. Let me walk you through this. And so he, Jesus, was in the world. What is he talking about there? He came from heaven to earth. He was on this material earth among people. That's that, the first definition of world. And the world was made through him. What is he talking about here? He's talking about more than just this earth and people. He's talking about the universe. So he's defining it as the universe here. He made everything and, and then he says, yet the world did not know him. The world did not know him. He, now he's talking about the fallen world values, the sinfulness of man. That's what he's saying here. So, so the material earth is to be enjoyed and taken care of. That's Genesis 1.26. The people of this fallen world are to be loved, John 3.16. And the values of this fallen world are to be rejected, So this is what it is, it's on your notes there, it is not letting the material world become ultimate in value in your life, to where where created things are more important to you than the creator. And when that happens, that's worldliness is what he's saying. You're loving the world more than you love God. Now, I've given you some statements. They're on your notes. There's three statements we're going to unpack, we're going to walk through to kind of help us to understand what that looks like when we take good things and turn them into ultimate things 
And uh, here's the first statement. Worldliness is to live, act, and think that the material world is all there is. It's called secularism. The definition for secularism is nowism. You're living for now. No thought of eternity. No thought of tomorrow. It's just, and that's our culture. Nowism. If the temporal is what you live for, it will never, it will never be enough, and what you get, you will eventually lose at death. You're building a sandcastle. It's just a matter of time when the wave comes in and wipes it out. So two of many signs of secularism, and let me give them to you. There's just two we're just going to look at. There's many signs of secularism, but one is stinginess. The other one is worry. Let's take stinginess first of all. To not be generous and spend all of your time, talent, and money on yourself is worldliness, Because what you're doing is that you are acting as if your happiness and this world is all that matters. No thought of eternal. No eternal matters. And and so people who know that there is a temporal and an eternal world will spend more of the temporal world on the eternal. That's why Jesus said in Matthew uh, 6, 19 through 24, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Take the temporal and use it for the eternal. And, um, and so that's, that's one sign of secularism. You're just living for now. You have no thought of helping others out or ministering to others, and uh, that would be stinginess. Here's the other one would be worry. Another sign of secularism. Jesus called it the cares of this world, Matthew 6, 25 through 34. See, it's one thing to be concerned, but if you are always worried about money, your job, your health, your clothes, etc., that's worldliness. You're preoccupied with what am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? That becomes the preoccupation of your life. He says that's worldliness. Worldly people are uptight, anxious, worried, bitter, and hopeless because they're building the foundation of their life on the temporal. And so what we have to do to overcome the secularism is we need to have an an eternal perspective. We need to live with a current perspective of eternity, which that's what I appreciated about being on the fire department and also appreciate about being a pastor because you regularly deal with people that are suffering and dying. And, it, and that keeps in front of you this current perspective of eternity. You're just reminded of that. That's why funerals are really good because it reminds us that that's gonna be me in that casket eventually. And what am I doing you know, with the temporal? Am I investing it into the eternal? So those are really important questions. Eternal perspective is, what, if, what about my life right now will still be true a billion years from now? And, and let me give you that answer is my relationship with God and my investment in people knowing God and growing in the relationship with God. Listen to what Spurgeon said. I have come to reckon that nothing is worth seeking after but that which will survive the tomb. 
So that's the first one, uh, just really understanding this worldliness is to live, act, and think that the material world is all there is. Here's another one. Worldliness is not receiving God's gifts with thanksgiving or enjoying them as he intended. So your, your thanksgiving and your adoration terminates on the gift rather than rolling on up to the gift and then using that gift in a way that he's designed us to use that gift. So if the gift of wine is used for drunkenness, if the gift of material things becomes extravagance, if the gift of sexuality is used for fornication and adultery, if the gift of work is used to gain power, we have misused good things from God to sinful ends. Here's the third idea of worldliness. Worldliness is anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. And that's what is most powerful about entertainment, TV, movies, music, YouTube, social media, blogs, magazines. They're all, listen to me, they're all bombarding us with worldliness. We are being, we are inundated. Ask a fish about water and he'll say, what's water? And that's how we are. We're swimming in worldliness. We're swimming and we don't even know it. We don't even know how much the world has even gotten a hold of our lives. Take, for instance, Super Bowl halftime show. The world would say that is normal and it empowers women. I actually heard Beyonce say that. Oh, that's, I'm, I'm empowering women. The Bible says that it objectifies and victimizes women. In fact, the Bible even goes further and says in Proverbs 11.22, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. I, 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 I love the Bible. Don't you love the Bible? Talk about gut punch. Boom. Oh, she's beautiful, but she's like a, it's like a gold ring in a pig's snout. She lacks discretion. I mean, the Bible tells it like it is doesn't it? And so we're, you know, millions and millions are applauding that halftime show, and yet uh, God is saying, that's horrible. That's objectifying women and victimizing women that follow that. And, um, And so we are inundated with messages like this. A family like that is normal, whatever that family might be that goes contrary to what the Bible says. A man wanting to be a woman is normal. Same-sex attraction and gay marriage is normal. Having all the toys that you can get is normal. Drunkenness and gluttony are normal. It's even celebrated. There's movies all about that. Pride and conceit are normal. But living my life for God's glory, that's strange. Undivided obedience to God's word is strange. Reading your Bible and praying every day is strange. Giving 10% and more of your money to your local church family and missions is strange. Not having sex before marriage is strange. Being extremely cautious about the entertainment you watch is strange. Risking your life to share the gospel is strange. You guys are strange. (laughs) And I'm very glad for that. (laughs) 
I'm glad that you guys are really, really strange compared to the world and what the world says. Some of you have even been called that. Someone, a few people came up to me last night and said, yeah, I've been called that. I'm strange. Yeah, you are. Praise God. That's, that's 100% right. Now, Nancy and I are, are very conscientious about the TV and the movies we watch. We oftentimes will turn TV shows off. We've walked out of movies, gotten our money back. It didn't matter whether we got our money back or not. We weren't going to sit through that movie. Have you ever gone to a movie before and you went ahead and sat through it and you just felt trashed? You felt like, man, I need to take a bath in God's word. And, um, and so we've been very conscious, uh, conscientious about that. And uh, we don't want to be a bad influence on others. And so it was a number of years ago, we were at uh, Deer Valley AMC, just right back over here, if you're familiar with it. We live right around the corner of that. And we had walked into the movie theater. Nancy had picked the movie. I wasn't really sure what the movie was about or anything like that. But I said, yeah, I'll go with you. And so we walked into the movie. We were walking in late. The place was packed. We were standing at the bottom of the steps, kind of looking up to find a seat. And somebody at the top yelled out and said, hey, Pastor Ray. (laughs) And I looked like a deer caught in the headlights. Everybody in here knows me. Now that I'm at this movie, and I leaned over to my wife and I said, What's this movie rated? <laughs> I mean, have you ever been there before? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> It's like, Oh my goodness, this better be a good movie or you're in trouble, Nancy. <laughs> and, and that's why we now travel to East Mesa to watch movies. <laughs> Just kidding. No, we're just, it made us like, we got to be more conscientious. We're going to have to study this before we even go to it. Because too many of you live in the area here, okay? (laughs) And you go to that place, that movie theater. And so uh, I don't want to be coming out and you come in and ask me, say, what movie did you go to, Pastor Ray? I didn't go to a movie. I just sat in there. Okay, so, 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 I mean, we want to be conscientious. So here are the things in this world he tells us not to love. So he says, love not the world or the things in this world. These are the things in this world. He defines them in verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. So he gives us three here. He uses the word desires. He uses it twice, but he's also kind of, uh, also could be used for that last one, the pride of life. It's just these desires of ego, and so the word desires, the Greek word is epithumia, means to, an over-desire. It means a dominating desire. It means an ultimate desire. That you would desire something in creation over and above the creator. And so that's what it is. It's an over-desire. It is making a good thing into an ultimate thing. And so we all tend to do that. It's not so much that we do bad things. We certainly do bad things. But it's taking good things and turning them into ultimate things, God things. Trying to get from those good things what only God can give to us. And what happens is that we crush it, whatever that is, whether it be a job, a a marriage, a friendship, any number of things. We crush it under the weight of our unrealistic expectations because we're trying to get from it what we should be getting from God. It creates all kinds of problems in our lives. And uh, 
James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15 kind of tells us how this temptation works its way out in our life. You need to be aware of this because here's where the battle is in your heart. See, the battle is, is in your heart. Worldliness is in our hearts. So you could not go to movies and don't dance and don't smoke or chew or and go with girls that do and all that and still have a heart that's worldly. Does that make sense? And so uh, it, it's really about... Who or what has the deepest, your heart's deepest loyalties and affections? Is it something in this world or is it something in God's word and who God is? See, that's, that's the battle. And so James goes like this. It starts with this desire and over desire. It goes from desire to deception. You're deceived into thinking that you're going to be happier by disobeying God than obeying him. And you're going to follow after your own pursuit. So that's, you're delusional if you think you're going to be happier by trying to get from your job what you should be getting from God. And so it goes to desire, deception, disobedience, and death. Death creates all sorts of problems. Take a look at your notes here. So this is how I would define desires of the flesh. I would uh, define them as the pleasures of life. The pleasures of life. Desires of the eyes would be the possessions of life. The pride of life would be the positions, the positions of life. One way of of saying this for me, it would be girls, gold, and glory. Or if, if you're a gal, it would be Guys, gold, and glory. Or it could be sex, money, and power would be another way of saying it. So he's defining this. This is what the world is after. Um, And so the world says if it feels good, do it. If it seems good, take it. If it makes you look good, go after it. Pleasures, possessions, and positions. Girls, gold, and glory. Now, what's interesting about this is that these parallel the three temptations of of Jesus in Matthew 4, 1 through 11, but they also parallel the temptations uh, of Adam and Eve. When they see the tree, they look at it, and you see all three of these in their taking uh, the tree and eating it. And so that's, that's fundamentally what's going on in your heart. It's usually over one of these three things, and it's loving one of these three things more than you love God. So let me ask you some questions. Do you find more pleasure in anything in this world more than God? Like food and drink, leisure, entertainment, and sex? You find more pleasure in those things than you do in God. By the way, whatever pleasure you find in those things is a dim glimpse of the pleasure that you can find in God. And so do you find more pleasure in the, in the things of this world than you do? you get more excited about the things of this world than you do about God being in your life? Here's another question for you. Um, do you find any possessions in this world, car, house, boat, uh, toys, cabin in the mountains, money as more important to you than what you possess as a follower of Jesus Christ in your investment into his kingdom. Do you find any position in this world, getting a raise, promotion, awards, whatever awards, championships, business or ministry success, etc. cetera, the, the list goes on, as more prestigious than being a child of God and having your name written in heaven. I was, I was tickled to death when I got that call from Phoenix Fire 
that they wanted me to go through their academy class, that was like, whoa, that was exciting. But it doesn't even come close to the excitement that I have in knowing Christ and being called a child of God. And so it's just, that's, uh, I, I was thankful that I understood that. I was able to keep those things in perspective. And um, I like what it says in Matthew 10, 20. This is Jesus sends out his disciples, and they come back, and they're just excited. They're rejoicing over their ministry success. We've cast out demons, and they listen to us. We set people free. And this is what Jesus says. Don't rejoice in your ministry success, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. If you find yourself regularly consuming God-ignoring, man-exalting, sin-condoning, sex-distorting, marriage-weakening, maleness-mocking, femaleness-trivializing, righteousness-ridiculing, arrogance-admiring entertainment, it will kill you spiritually. It will take you out. The world is out to kill you. It's out to kill you. And so we are bombarded. We are swimming in worldliness. There's a billion-dollar industry that promotes it. It's called advertising. And it's, it's all about consumerism and commercialism and capitalism and all these things you, that uh, happiness is one purchase away or one relationship away or any number of things that we are bombarded with these messages in, in our world. Is it any wonder why we struggle with experiencing the wealth of his presence, the comfort of his love, the strength of his power, the significance of being called his child? I have people regularly say that to me. I just, I don't experience God quite like you do. And my question would always be, so what are you consuming regularly? What are you consuming? Because you're desire for God is being smothered by your desire, desires for the things of this world. And so why we shouldn't love the world, that's the next question we're looking at here. Loving God and the world are mutually exclusive. So look at verse 15b. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So, so think about this. If you love anything in the world more than God, then he's just saying, the love of the Father is not in you. You're not experiencing the love of the Father, obviously, because you would love anything more than you would love the Father. Love of the world, the reason why these are mutually exclusive, they're totally opposite, is that, and, and the reason why you can't love the world and love God at the same time is because love of the world is proud, self-serving, impure. It takes and it restricts. Love of the Father is humble, self-sacrificing, pure. It gives and it liberates. They're, they're diabolically opposite. To love not the world is to hate the things God hates and love the things God loves. And if you have the love of the Father, if the love of the Father is in you, then how can you love anything that the Father despises? The love of the Father is not in you if you do. If you love anything that the Father despises. He's just saying, you don't understand the love of God. You're not living in the reality of his love for you. If you have the love of God in you, 
uh, you'll be able to make that distinction. You love what he loves when you know how much he loves you. He loves you more than anyone could ever love you. And it's, it's amazing. He will sweep you off of your feet. You will be captivated by his love. That's normal Christianity. To be smitten by his love. That's normal Christianity. Is that you want his love, you, you have his love, you experience his love, and it's better than anything in this world. Uh, Psalm 63.3, his steadfast love is better than life. His steadfast love is better than anything in life. I love my wife. I, I love the love she gives me. I love my kids. I love my grandkids. I, there's a lot of things I love, but nothing can compare to his love for me. And... Uh, I, I just, I love God. I love Jesus. I love what I have in him. And it, and it just, like for me, it just seems to get better through the years. The older I get, the more I realize how much I need him and the more I cling to him and the more I'm satisfied in him and the more liberating it is to my life as I walk with him and know him and enjoy him. That's the Christian life. And so... Why we shouldn't love the world, loving God and, and the world are mutually exclusive, but also love for the world will pass away. And uh, verse 17a, and the world is passing away along with its desires. So here's how it works, and this is how I'm able to identify uh, those times uh, when I certainly love uh, the world more than I love God, because we all battle with that. It's, it's, prob- it's certainly a daily battle. So this is how I'm able to identify it in my own life, and I can identify it in other people's lives, is that if you love anything more than you love God, it will drive you when you seek it. It will control your life. It will disappoint you when you get it because it will never be enough. Your, your heart was made for something bigger like God. The greatest gift of the gospel is God, and you were made for him, and so you're trying to fill it up with something that's temporal and a created thing when your heart was meant for the creator and something eternal. And so it will drive you when you seek it. It will disappoint you when you get it. And listen to me, it will devastate you when you lose it. And so how do you know when a good thing has become an ultimate thing? How do you know when a good thing has become an ultimate thing? Here's some signs. Is that when that good thing that has become an ultimate thing is threatened, you're not just anxious you're paranoid. So, so there's rumors where you work, possible layoff. It's okay to be anxious, blow the dust off your resume, maybe put it out there, realize that you might lose your job and you might need to look for another job. It's just, it should be a, a measure of anxiousness. But if that anxiousness moves into paranoia, obsession, that job that you're looking to has become your ultimate security and maybe even your ultimate significance as opposed to God. And your emotional response is telling you something about that. That job has your heart's deepest loyalties and affections more than God. So when when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing and it's threatened, you're not just anxious, you're paranoid. When it's blocked, you're not just angry, but you're bitter. Let's say, for instance, that you want to, you desperately worked hard to, to get that promotion. In fact, you needed the promotion just to be able to provide for your family, just to make ends meet. 
and the boss gives it to his lug nut son-in-law who's dumber than a box of rocks, okay? And, and you're like, how could he promote him over me? I have more experience. I'm so much smarter than this guy. He doesn't know what, what is even going on. And so that shouldn't make you certainly angry and you need to process that. But if that makes you bitter, then that promotion means more to you than it needs to mean. It's more important to you than God. So a good thing becomes an ultimate thing you know a good thing has become an ultimate thing. When it's threatened, you're, you're not just anxious, you're paranoid. When it's blocked, you're not just angry, but you're bitter. But when it's lost, when it's lost, you're not just sad, but you're depressed and maybe even suicidal. On the fire department, I went on a number of calls. We went on calls regularly of uh, suicidal attempts and suicides uh, over loss of job, loss of a lover, loss of health. See, all of that was, was a good thing that become an, became an ultimate thing in their life. So they weren't just sad. It was appropriate for them to be sad, but to be depressed and suicidal is another thing. That's how you're able to identify those uh, things in your life. Now, how do we not love the world? You realize this is not God's best for you. Realize it's not God's best for you. Look at verse 16b. The, and basically what he's saying, the over-desire for the pleasures, possessions, and positions of life is not from the Father. This is not from the Father. He has something better by far for you, and it's him. Better by far. Jesus is better by far than the pleasures, possessions, and positions of life. Jesus is better by far than sex, money, and power. The Bible says that over and over and over again. And when, when God commands us to not love the world, he is commanding us to do what will bring us the greatest joy in life. That's a commandment because he wants the very best for us. He's not holding out on us. Well, that's kind of the first thing you need to be convinced of. He has my best interest. Nobody loves me like he does. He's going to take care of me. I trust his, his perfect love, infinite wisdom, unlimited power, working for my good and his glory. I rest in him. That would be normal Christianity. So we need to ponder regularly the superiority of God as our great reward over all that the world has to offer. If you're not pondering that regularly, you will love the world like everyone else and live like everyone else. But if you're pondering that, if you're reveling in that, if you're basking in the reality of all that you have in him, you're gonna not have that attraction to the world and you'll have more of an attraction to God you'll still struggle with it I'm not saying you won't struggle with that but you have to ponder ponder that over and over again what we have in him remember God's truth and love will endure forever this is another part of that remember God's truth and love will endure forever when everything else passes away look at verse 17b but whoever does the will of God abides forever you know what he's saying when you what is abiding forever listen you will be unshakable and unbreakable in life you can face anything 
with love and joy and peace because of what he's doing in our lives. God is better and more abiding than anything the world has to offer. There's a Scottish mathematician and leader of the Free Church of Scotland back in the 1800s. His name was Thomas Chalmers. And he preached a sermon titled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Really a great sermon. But let me summarize that sermon in, in a sentence. This is what he says. The only way to, to, to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. And I think the best example of this is one that's a classic story here at Desert Breeze, and I share this in, I just shared it this last week in the Game of Life, and it's my, um, my oldest grandson is now 14, 15 years old, I think he's 14, and, and so what's interesting is that when he was two years old and his parents would come over to the house and they would, they would bring him in, and he would, the very first thing he would do, so he was two years old, he would not even say hi or bye or anything, he'd just dart into the, the one, the first room to the right because we turned that, once the kids all moved out, we turned that one into a toy room. Kept all the kids' toys, and so he knew where all the toys were, and he went in that room. So we went and sat in the living room, and he came out of that toy room with his arms full of cars, cars. That was all he could pretty much say. He was into cars. There's no doubt about it. Cars. He was actually saying that. He was verbalizing it. His arms were filled up with these cars, 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 cars. And he came over into the kind of the entryway, and he looked into the living room and did a double take on the uh, coffee table, and he goes, he looked at it and goes, what? And he threw those cards down. He went like this. He just threw them down. He ran over to the coffee table and said, candies. <laughs> it's a perfect example of the explosive power of a new affection. Okay? So he had an affection for cars, but not as much as, of, of, you know, not as much as a, an affection for candies. Get rid of those cars. I want candies. And that's what God does. Holiness is being so happy in God that sin loses its appeal. You begin to look at sin as being cheap, shallow, and foolish. You just, you, your thinking is like this. Why would I want that when I have him? That doesn't make any sense. That's insane. That's delusional to think, think that. And um, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. We're half-hearted creatures fooling with drink fooling with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're too easily pleased. So let's prepare our hearts for communion this morning. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? So Father God, we acknowledge our sin that separates us from you. We believe that your son Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We confess him as our savior and our Lord. We give our lives to him and all that he has done for us. We receive that. And God, we love you, we worship you, we pray that our affections for the things of this world would be replaced by greater affections for Christ, and our greater affections for Christ would be awakened and nurtured by his affections for us. We are in awe and wonder of Jesus' love for us, that it, it was so intense that he wouldn't even let death and hell stand between us and him, even if it meant entering into infinite suffering for us. And that is what he did. But may we bask in the reality of that every day. May we revel in that. Lord, teach us how to revel in all you are and have done for us until our hearts are ravished 
and smitten by your love. We celebrate all of this now through communion. We pray in Jesus' beautiful name, amen.